The village is incredibly quiet. Just the sounds of animals and the occasional bird break the silence. Then, somewhere in the distance, gunshots. No one moves. There's no rush of surprise or shock to attend or assist. It's far too dangerous to be a helpful neighbour now. But the gunshots are not what they think they are. And a predator is getting away with murder. This is True Crime South Africa. I'm Nicole Engelbrecht, and you're listening to episode 144, The Serial Crimes of Mklengwa Zikode. This episode is sponsored by We Filmed a Zoo on the Dreamstream platform. Ever wondered what goes on behind the scenes at Joburg Zoo? Dreamstream has collaborated with Joburg Zoo Friends to create We Filmed a Zoo. This unique show documents what's happening at Johannesburg Zoo and gives you an up-close experience with the animals and curators. The show raises funds for important projects the zoo regularly undertakes. The family-friendly content is also a perfect way to keep the kids occupied while helping to contribute to the well-being of the animals. We Filmed a Zoo is just one of the shows exclusively produced for the Dreamstream platform. The Dreamstream app is available on Android. iPhone users can access it via their mobile-friendly site. You can sign up for a free one-month trial without entering any card details up front. It's super easy to access. More information is available on joburgzoofriends.org. And a how-to video is available on their YouTube channel, dream.stream.za. Or engage with them via their website, dreamstream.co.za. To see promos of We Filmed a Zoo, as well as some of the other awesome content, visit and follow Dreamstream's social media platforms on Facebook, Instagram, TikTok, or YouTube. A huge thank you to We Filmed a Zoo and Dreamstream for their support of True Crime South Africa. Since 2019, True Crime South Africa has been telling the stories of the victims of violent crime in South Africa. The podcast is independent. That means no big or even little corporates fund it. And that's just the way I like it. And it's the only independent podcast in South Africa that consistently charts in the top 10. Keeping a podcast like this going is time-consuming. And for the most part, it remains a one-woman process. It's me. I'm the one woman. You. Yes, you, are the reason this podcast continues to flourish and help bring in tips on missing person and cold cases. If you'd like to help keep the show running, please consider supporting our sponsors, signing up to Patreon or PayPal, follow the show on the socials, as the kids say, and share it with your fellow partners in crime. You can find our social links and learn more about our sponsors at True Crime South Africa forward slash donate. Shout out to this week's Patreon and PayPal superstars. A huge thank you goes out to Spamandla Dlamini, 
Janet Fisser, Ashley Wood, and Bevy BMW. Thank you so much, everyone. Just a reminder that if you've signed up to Patreon and you haven't heard your shout-outs, please do reach out to me on the Patreon platform by direct messaging. Patreon isn't great about letting me know about each and every person that signs up, so please let me know if I've missed you and I'll sort that out. Patreon supporters get one additional exclusive episode a month, a shout-out on the pod, and other exclusive contents including Q&As with me as and when it's available. It's a minimum of $1 a month. I think you should do it. Please. And thank you. Keba. The crime I'm discussing in today's episode occurs against a backdrop which is incredibly important to the story itself. In fact, the offender would use the events of this time in history to mask and enable his crimes. And it's vitally important to understanding the lived experience of the communities from which the victims came. So I will discuss that first in the beginning of the episode for context. In researching this case, I used several academic studies, as well as a chapter from Mickey Pistorius's book, Strangers on the Street. So let's get into episode 144, The Serial Crimes of Mtlengwa Zikode. The following episode may contain sensitive material including descriptions of violence, sexual assault or graphic descriptions of injuries to victims. If you feel you may be triggered by such material, please consider this before accessing our content. To access trauma counselling or services, please see the helpline information on our show notes. KwaZulu-Natal is one of the most picturesque provinces in South Africa. It's about the same size as Portugal at around 92,100 square kilometres. It's made up of three different geographic areas. The lowland region on the Indian Ocean coast is narrow in the south and widens in the northern part of the province. The central part of the province is known as the Midlands and consists of a hilly plateau. There are two mountainous areas in the province as well, the western Drakensberg Mountains and the northern Lebombo Mountains, which borders Lesotho. The largest river in the province, the Tugela, flows west to east across the centre of the province. As beautiful as the province is, and as warm and welcoming as its people are, it has a dark history of violence. The 1980s and 1990s were tumultuous times in the area. The period of violence is now referred to as faction fighting, which is a term that does absolutely no justice to explaining the deeply complex conflicts which occurred between political factions in the area. There are excellent academic papers available on the internet that you can download for free, which explain the complexities behind the violent period, but the summary is as follows. The two sides of the violence were the Cultural Liberation Movement and Zulu Nationalist Organization, called Inkata, and on the other side were members of the African National Congress, ANC, and the UDC. It's important to note that the Zulu people are the indigenous people of this area, 
And much of this conflict was around Inkata's desire to establish certain rights for the Zulu people in the area. And although I won't go into the additional complexities around the conflicts here, many of the academic papers I read mentioned how much of the conflict was also fueled and even possibly funded by the apartheid government. I encourage you to do some further reading on this. I often find that what I was taught in school about South Africa's history is a ridiculously narrow and selective version of our true history. Faction fighting in KZN was extremely violent, and thousands of people died in different confrontations across time. Even as apartheid fell as a policy in South Africa, and the first free and fair elections were held in 1994, the violence continued in the province. Donnybrook is a settlement about two and a half hours inland from Durban. The entire area was ravaged by violence throughout the 1980s and 1990s, and right up until 1995, the attacks were still happening regularly, and communities lived very much in survival mode, becoming quite insular, protecting themselves from outsiders, and sadly, having to turn away from the traditional African way of helping one another when needed, to focusing solely on the safety of one's family at all costs. It's for this reason that when murders began happening in the area, many of the community members had tried not to get involved. It was simply too risky. On the 13th of April 1995, Tandi Gwala and her friend were waiting on a quiet street for Tandi's boyfriend to pick them up when they were approached by a man. The man walked straight up to Tandi, greeted her, and told her he wanted to have sex with her. Tandi was shocked at the stranger's cheek and immediately refused. The man grabbed her arm, and her friend tried to help Tandi get away, but the attacker fired his gun and shot Tandi's friend. The young woman ran away into the surrounding bushes, but the man followed her. He would soon catch up to her, and seemingly not caring that Tandi had likely already run for help, he raped the woman and left her bleeding from her gunshot wound in the bush. Help did eventually come for the young woman, and she survived her gunshot wound. Although both women provided full statements, the investigation didn't go very far. Just a note that I've not named the victim here, although her name is available in other sources, because she is a rape survivor, and as such, entitled to anonymity by law. Six days later, on the 19th of April 1995, Sibongile Mkise was asleep with her boyfriend, Sibongise Ngobo, at his home. In the middle of the night, a man wearing a balaclava kicked down the door. Without a word, he raised his 9mm firearm and shot both dead in their bed. They were discovered the next day. Community members would later admit that they had heard the couple's screams as the man had kicked down their door and they'd heard the gunshots. But they hadn't gone to check because they were too afraid it was a faction-fighting-related attack. Two factors would also impact the way this 
and many other cases in this series were initially investigated. The violence in the area, and also the fact that police were still very much in the early stages of becoming a service for all people of South Africa, rather than a force, which was used against the vast majority of South Africans for a very long time. The murders of Sibongile Mkizi and Sibongise Ngobo were very clearly put aside by the SAPS as a faction-fighting incident, even though neither victim had any connection to the embattled movement. These and many victims going forward unfortunately did not receive proper autopsies, and in many cases, victims were buried with the bullets that had killed them still in their bodies. Even though it was entirely possible that the perpetrator may have raped Sibongile after she was killed, the substandard post-mortem meant that no one checked whether any sexual assault had taken place. Less than a month later, another victim would be found in a forested area about 20 minutes from Donnybrook. The female victim had sustained a gunshot wound to the head. She had been raped, and her body had been staged. She had also been very badly mutilated, with multiple parts of her body having been removed. Grass and twigs had also been inserted into the woman's vagina. Foreign body insertion is a very specific type of behavior in sexually motivated offenders that may or may not appear in each of the murders in a series. It often speaks to an offender who is sexually immature, not able to obtain an erection in order to rape or attempting to further humiliate the victim. Of course, this crime was very different in nature from the previous crime, but it was quite similar with several additions to the rape of the first victim recorded in this series. Sadly, this victim would never be identified. On the 9th of June 1995, 34-year-old Mzozayo Pozwa was standing in the kitchen of his sister-in-law, Ntombi Pozwa, with her three children. They were chatting and making tea when suddenly a man wearing a balaclava kicked down the kitchen door and pointed a 9mm gun at them. Mzozoya tried to disarm him, but the man shot him in the chest and Mzozoya fled the home. The intruder then tried to grab Ntombi to drag her outside and when she resisted, he shot her in the abdomen and fled the scene. She died from loss of blood before an ambulance could arrive. Just a few weeks later, on the 24th of June, a 29-year-old woman was asleep in her home with her 9-year-old daughter when a man wearing a balaclava burst through the door. He fired a single shot, which did not hit either victim, and then proceeded to rape the mother for hours while her daughter hid in her bed. The attacker then turned his attention to the child, who he also attempted to rape, and the mother saw her opportunity to run for help. The attacker fled. Two days later, the killer struck again when he attacked a 30-year-old woman and her friend, Amos Mubane, while they were walking to work just outside Donnybrook. The man walked up to them and fired several shots without warning. Amos was struck in the neck, and the young woman was shot in the right leg. 
The attacker then dragged the woman off the road and attempted to rape her. A passing car disturbed him and he fled. Both victims were rushed to the hospital, but sadly, Amos Mubane died from his injuries. On the 8th of July 1995, 27-year-old Zanele Kumalo was asleep when the killer broke down her door and shot her in the head. He then dragged Zanele's body outside and raped her. On the 27th of July 1995, Beauty Zulu was walking to work when a man wearing a balaclava approached her with a gun. The woman screamed and turned to run, but she was shot in the head. Beauty did recover in hospital, and as she healed from her injuries, she realized that even though the man's face had been covered, she knew who it was that had attacked her. She believed the man was someone she'd known for years, someone whose family lived next door to her. It would take some time for the terrified woman to approach the police with this information, though, and until then, the crimes continued. On the 5th of August, Locatia Madlamini and Cornelia Dlamini were sleeping at home when their door was kicked in and a balaclava-clad man pointed a gun at them and demanded sex. The two women pleaded for their lives and the man hit Locatia over the head and then pulled Cornelia outside. Cornelia broke free from him and ran back inside the home where she and Locatia barricaded the door. The man fired several shots into the door and the women were injured, but they survived their injuries and the attacker fled. Shortly after this incident, Beauty Zulu, who had believed she knew who had attacked her, finally decided to admit this information to police. She identified her neighbor's 30-year-old son, Mtlengwe Zikode, as her attacker. The young man was arrested at his home on the 10th of August. He was charged with the crime against Beauty and released on 300 rand bail. At this point, police had absolutely no idea that Sikode was responsible for any other crimes. In fact, despite the community insisting that the same perpetrator was involved in many of the murders and rapes in their area that year, the police had not officially linked the other cases at all. The community was convinced that there was a serial predator among them. They'd noticed the similarities between the attacks, and they knew very well that none of them were faction-fighting related. The community of Donnybrook had become so enraged at the inaction by the SAPS and the continued attacks on their residents that they had taken what they thought was justice into their own hands and killed three men in separate incidents, who they believed were the rapists and killers. The men were innocent, and the murders and rapes had, of course, continued after their deaths. When Mtlengwa Zikode was arrested for the attack on Beauty, and then released on bail, community representatives approached police with their concerns. As a result, the case was given to Sergeant Dion van Heistian, who would be assisted by Inspector Theo Goldstone. Goldstone had previously been trained by Dr. Mickey Pistorius in the investigation of serial crimes. 
the officers started working to look at the various cases, and the court proceedings against Sikode for Beauty's attack continued, and he appeared in court again on the 23rd of September 1995. On the 25th of September, there was another attack. 42-year-old Figaleni Mamela had been asleep in her home in Donnybrook when a man broke into her house and shot her in the jaw. The man then raped her before shooting her again in the chest. Figaleni died on the scene. As Van Hastian and Goldstone looked at the various cases before them, they started to see the similarities in modus operandi. Unfortunately, the initial investigations had either been non-existent or very poorly done, and the pair had to start from scratch on each and every single case, taking statements, plotting out the geography of the scenes, and seeing what physical evidence, if any, remained. The autopsies that were done were frustratingly brief, and rape kits had not been taken from many of the rape victims. The investigating pair had to go as far as exhuming some of the victims to retrieve the bullets from the bodies so that they could have something to compare to a possible murder weapon. The modus operandi, geography, and beauty Zulu's case together pointed the officers in one direction, Mklengwa Zikode. On the 29th of September 1995, Van Hastien arrested Zikode at his home. They found a pile of balaclavas in his room, which were collected as evidence. Also on the man's bedroom walls were pinups he'd pulled out of semi-pornographic magazines. Some of the scenes in the posters had been recreated in the murder and rape scenes in the cases with which he was charged. It didn't take very long for Zikode to admit his guilt, at least in part. By the next morning, he was pointing out the scenes of five of the murders. There were, however, seven additional cases, besides those he'd confessed to, that police believed he was involved in. Zikode also refused to tell police where his firearm was. Now, Although it would be revealed that Zikode had not had access to much schooling due to a difficult childhood and the economic circumstances of his family, the man was clearly intelligent. And he knew well enough that if he gave police his firearm, he would be linked through ballistics to many more than the five murders and rapes he'd confessed to. Perhaps even more than the additional seven police believed he'd committed to. In attempting to understand the crimes as deeply as possible before they went to trial, investigators would go back in time to discover more about who their suspect was. Mklengwa Christopher Zikode was born on the 8th of November 1965 in the Umzimkulu area of KwaZulu-Natal, which is within half an hour's drive of Donnybrook. His family would move around a lot during his childhood to avoid the pockets of violence that sprung up in the area. Mklengwa was the youngest of five children, one sister and three brothers. His eldest sister became his main caretaker, and he had an incredibly strong bond with her, seeing her essentially as his mother. 
Nklengwa's father was a paraplegic, and the youngest Zikode was appointed as his dedicated caregiver almost as soon as he could walk and talk. Living in a rural area at the time meant that the children were needed to do chores and fulfill roles around the home, and there wasn't very much time for playing. Besides being his father's assigned carer, Mklengwa was also put in charge of caring for the family's herd of goats. His parents didn't want the children associating with other children as they were concerned they'd be negatively influenced. As a result, from his birth until the age of 12, Mklengwa's entire world consisted of his family and their herd of goats. His only interactions with children outside of the home were brief when his family travelled into town occasionally. When Mklengwa was 10, his father passed away. Soon after, his sister left the home without telling him, and he never saw her again. These two losses were devastating to the young boy. He would later blame his sister for his crimes. He claimed that it was her job to teach him how to interact with girls and women, and his inability to understand social interactions between the genders was the reason he'd resorted to rape. When Nklengwa was 13, he was sent to live with his grandmother. The woman was not very happy that her grandson hadn't been in school and immediately enrolled him. But for Nklengwa, being thrust into a school environment at 13 years old after having no social interaction throughout his life was a nightmare. He struggled only slightly with the actual schoolwork and caught up quite quickly, but interactions with his peers, particularly the girls, was almost impossible for him, and he quickly developed a reputation as someone the girls should stay away from and someone the boys bullied. Besides his social difficulties, or perhaps partially as a result, Mklengwa leaned more and more into his childhood dream, which was to become a soldier in the faction-fighting movement happening in his province. Likely, in a search for power of some sort, Mklengwa had aligned himself politically, at least in his own mind, and regularly expressed these alliances at school, riling up his fellow students and generally creating chaos. After just three years at school, he was expelled. When Mklengwa was 16, he had his first sexual experience with a girl. He claims it was fully consensual, but non-penetrative in nature, as the girl was concerned about getting pregnant, and they didn't have a condom. This would be his one and only consensual sexual experience. When asked about the nude posters on his wall of the women in suggestive poses, Mklengwa explained that his mother had been collecting firewood one day when she'd come across a stack of pornographic magazines lying in the felt. She'd brought the magazines home for him, and it was in there that he'd found the posters that had gone on to help him form his fantasies around rape and murder. Mklengwa soon moved back to his mother's home in Donnybrook. He would claim to have made his childhood fantasies of being a soldier in the faction fighting a reality, 
and later confessed to having killed four men in separate faction clashes. Although it would be easy to dismiss Mklengwa's claims of having been involved in faction fighting as flights of fantasy, it actually ties in with his crimes. The militaristic way in which he concealed his identity, used a weapon, which would not have been as easily available to procure as they are today, and burst into his victims' homes, controlling them, does speak to him having been involved in some type of organised crime. This could also be where he learned about ballistics, and the importance of not allowing police to match bullets to his gun. When speaking about how his series of crimes began, he claims that the first incidence of rape was almost like a gateway to the murders. For him, the murders of the male victims were very much about power and gaining control of the female victims. He didn't usually care, he said, if the women died afterwards or not. Sometimes, he said, he killed them because they were making too much noise. Interestingly, although investigators believed Zekorde to be responsible for the badly mutilated unidentified victim where foreign body insertion was present, He refused to accept responsibility for that crime. It was quite different from the other murders, and this is not entirely uncommon in serial murders. The offender does not always start out with an exact idea of how they wish to achieve the desired result they seek, and they'll change up parts of their modus operandi and sometimes completely veer away from what they've done before, in an attempt to find their perfect murder. Chillingly, Zikode said that he would often select his victims while in church on a Sunday. He would then follow them home to figure out where they lived and watched each of them for a while before striking. He also admitted that not all of his rape victims were alive when he'd raped them. Although Zikode admitted to committing the crimes, he refused to take any actual responsibility for his actions and did not feel that his actions were his fault. He alternately blamed two of the women in his life, his older sister and his mother, saying that it was their fault he'd done the things he did and they should be the ones to apologise. Dr. Mickey Pistorius deems Zikode to be an egocentonic serial killer. The classification in the field of psychology she practices means that he was able to commit murder without the disruption of his ego function. In other words, he found the murders to be quite rational and acceptable in his mind and didn't feel any remorse around them. For Zikode, His crimes were an almost expected conclusion to the experiences he'd had in his life. While awaiting trial for his crimes, Mklengwa Sikodi escaped from prison with several other awaiting trial individuals. He committed a housebreaking while he was out on the run and was rearrested soon after. On the 30th of June 1997, Mklengwa Zikode was found guilty of 21 separate charges, including murder, rape, attempted murder, and indecent assault, and he was sentenced to five life sentences plus additional years 
which would be served concurrently. The few media sources that exist about this case claim that Ntlengwa murdered 18 people, but he was only officially convicted of eight murders, and I'm not sure where these sources get the other ten from, unless they're referring to the murders he was suspected of. Serial murders are always horrifying and tragic. The accumulation of so many victims at the hands of one perpetrator will never cease to be the stuff of nightmares. In this case, though, it's incredibly saddening to me how so many of these victims died needlessly and their murders were just completely overlooked by the people who were supposed to solve them. It's not uncommon, of course. This happens today in high-crime areas, especially places where gangs operate. A civilian will be caught in the crossfire, and either they'll be incorrectly painted as a gang member, or, if that's not possible, they'll just become collateral damage. Shoulders are shrugged. It's a gang crime. And the victim's family is supposed to just move on. Now, of course, that doesn't happen all the time, but it happens a lot. I know many people whose loved ones have died in the crossfire of gangs and their murders have never been solved or even properly investigated. The victims of Zekode are a clear representation of how justice is not for all. And even though today our law enforcement is less likely to give you different service based on the colour of your skin, there will absolutely be people whose murders are not given the attention they deserve for many unfair and unjust reasons. Zekode, at the very least, did not pretend to be remorseful for his actions. He did not try to present himself as anything other than what he was, a cold-blooded killer and a sexual predator. While his childhood was certainly not ideal, it definitely did not add up to what he thought it did. There is no universe in which social isolation inevitably results in rape and murder. That is entirely a choice. South Africa is such an incredibly unique country, and every time I cover a case and do a bit of background on the circumstances around that crime and what was happening around the criminal and the victims, I'm continually amazed at how little I truly understand about our history. And I think this is true for many South Africans. Like a confession from a killer, there is what we are told, there is the truth, and when you look a little closer, all of the incredible, little, and not so little, complexities in between that tell the real story. Sibongile Mkize, Sibongiseni Ngobo, Ntombi Poswa, Amos Mubane, Sipiwe Zuma, Zanele Kumalo, Figaleni Mamela, the unidentified victim, and the three innocent men who lost their lives to the instances of misguided mob justice. <laughs> <laughs> 
raised gently. If you'd like to hear more victim-focused true crime content, please subscribe to True Crime South Africa on Spotify or the platform you're using to listen right now. If you're looking for something still related to real-life stories, but often with a more positive slant, you can check out my new podcast series, I Live Through This. You can follow both podcasts on social media. We're on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. I'll be back next week with another episode. Until then, thank you for your support, and I'll chat to you soon.